Hello, everybody. I'm Warren Smith coming to you from Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'm Natasha Smith coming to you from Colorado Springs, Colorado, and we'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. On today's program, we take a look at a Nigerian prosperity gospel preacher whose church, called the Winner's Chapel, now has locations in the United States in 30 U.S. cities. We also have new information about the King's College, the Manhattan Christian School facing a financial crisis. And a well-known Christian filmmaker has pleaded guilty to felony sex charges. I'll have details. We begin today with two stories about the Southern Baptist Convention. The first one is about former SBC President Johnny Hunt. The disgraced former Southern Baptist president is now suing the denomination that he once led, saying that he was defamed by allegations that he assaulted another pastor's wife. In a complaint filed in federal court, the Reverend Johnny Hunt, a longtime Georgia megachurch pastor, did admit that he had a brief inappropriate extramarital encounter with a married woman in 2012, but claimed that the incident was consensual and that it was a private matter that should have never been made public in a major 2022 report. The complaint said Hunt sought counseling and forgiveness for the incident, which the complaint said was a sin. However, Hunt never disclosed the incident to the First Baptist Church of Woodstock, Georgia, where he was the pastor for three decades or to the SBC North American Mission Board, where he was vice president until resigning in 2022. But the incident became public in May of 2022 after it was discovered by investigators at Guidepost Solutions, a consulting firm that had been hired by the SBC to investigate how SBC leaders dealt with the issue of abuse. Guidepost investigators included the incident as part of its report and described it as a sexual assault. Those investigators said that they found the allegations against Hunt to be credible. Now, the former SBC president at first denied the allegations, then claimed the incident did occur but was consensual. The complaint alleges the SBC and guideposts engaged in defamation and libel that they invaded Hunt's privacy and intentionally caused him emotional harm. A spokesperson for the SBC's Nashville-based executive committee said SBC leaders are aware of the suit but has a policy of not commenting on active litigation. Guidepost Solutions also declined to comment. Hunt made a defiant return to the pulpit back in January at a Florida megachurch after a group of pastors announced that Hunt had been through a restoration process and was fit to return to ministry after a brief hiatus. During that sermon, Hunt said false allegations, those are his words, had ruined his life. But he told the congregation that if God calls someone to do something, that calling can't be undone. And God called that person knowing that the person might sin and fail. We have another story involving the SBC. We do. Karen Swallow Pryor, who is a research professor of English and 
Christianity and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in North Carolina announced this week on Twitter that she won't be returning for the fall semester there due to what she calls differing visions for carrying out the Great Commission. Karen Swallow Pryor has been a professor at Liberty University for more than 20 years before joining the faculty of Southeast. Yeah, she said that she adores her students and colleagues at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, but that it has become clearer through heartfelt discussions with leadership and much self-reflection over the past few years that the institution and I, these are her her words, do not share the same vision for carrying out the Great Commission. Now, Karen Swallow Pryor was the first ever research professor at SEBTS in its 70 year history. And it has also become clear to me, she said, that I am simply not well suited to the politics of institutional life in the SBC. Therefore, I've made the difficult decision not to return in the fall. Our next story is an update of a story we first covered last September. It's the story of Steve Grison, who is a Christian filmmaker and a veteran of the Jesus Movement's 1970s-era music scene. He pled guilty on Wednesday in Colorado Springs to a criminal attempt to solicit online sex with a minor. In the plea deal, Grison agreed to register as a sex offender and spend five years in Colorado's supervision program for sex offenders. He had been arrested on charges for inducement of child prostitution, patronizing a prostituted child, and sexual assault on a child. If he had been convicted of all these charges, he could have been sentenced to 12 years in prison. As Ministry Watch reported earlier, Grison was arrested on September 7th of last year after arranging to pay an undercover detective $170 to have sex with a 14-year-old girl. The arrest came amid efforts by local and federal officials to identify and arrest child sexual predators. Grison, who is 68 years old, runs two Christian film companies from Monument, Colorado, which is a town just north of Colorado Springs. Those companies are Exploration Films Distribution, which says it manages distribution for more than 400 films, and Real Productions, which released First Love and acclaimed film on the early years of the contemporary Christian music movement, as well as biblical and other shows, including one, The Mystery of the Ark of the Covenant. He was a singer in the 1970s Christian band The Family, which toured with the second chapter of Acts. Orrin, let's look at one more story before the break. This one also involves a pastor involved in sexual abuse. His name is Joshua Burton Henley. He's a 34-year-old former minister for Churches of Christ in Kansas, Texas, Tennessee, and Indiana, and he must serve 45 years in federal prison for sexual abuse. U.S. District Judge Stanley Thomas Anderson finalized Henley's sentence on March 3rd on eight 
convictions, including producing sexually explicit images of a minor, transporting and possessing child pornography, transferring obscene material to a minor, and transporting a minor across state lines with the intent to engage in sexual activity. Court documents list the minors' ages as 12, 14, and 15 at the times of the offenses, which took place between 2017 and 2021. Henley, who was married and has two children, became acquainted with the three victims through his involvement as the basketball coach for the Holiday Elementary School and as a youth minister for the Holiday Church of Christ in Tennessee. According to federal court documents, Henley and his wife later divorced following his arrest. Uh, representing the state, U.S. Attorney Lauren Delery described Henley as deliberately step-by-step grooming these children. He had access to children, she said, and he knew how to groom them. She concluded, Joshua Henley is dangerous. By the time of his arrest, Henley had moved to a youth ministry position with the Washington Avenue Church of Christ in Evansville, Indiana. Church leadership immediately terminated his employment. Henley also previously served with Elkhart Church of Christ in Kansas, according to the church's Facebook page. The page mentions him serving there in 2018 and 2019 as director of a session for children ages 9 to 13 at Black Mesa Bible Camp in Kenton, Oklahoma. And Natasha, let me just pause here for a second and say that, you know, reporting on these kinds of stories, I know for a lot of our listeners is tough to listen to. It's tough for us and our reporters to report on these. That's one of the reasons why uh, we have written an article on why we tell these kinds of stories, even though they are painful and difficult sometimes to tell. And if you go to our website and click on either one of these stories, you will find a link, which really sort of explains our philosophy and our procedure for covering these kinds of sex abuse stories. Warren, we need to take a break here. When we return, the story of a Nigerian church that has made its pastor wealthy. That church is now in more than 30 U.S. cities. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host Warren Smith. We'll have that story and much more after this short break. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host, Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Up next, the story we promised before the break. It's the story of the Winner's Chapel, a Nigerian church that has made its pastor one of the richest pastors in the world. One of the wealthiest prosperity 
preachers in the world that some people say has a net worth of $150 million is now making inroads into the United States. In 1981, Nigerian pastor David Oyedepo started Living Faith Church Worldwide, which is better known now as the Winner's Chapel, after claiming that he had received a vision from God to, in his words, liberate the world from all oppression of the devil through the preaching of the word of faith. Now, since then, over 5,000 Winner's Chapel congregations have been planted all over the world, including in Africa, Europe, Asia, and now in North America. There are Winner's Chapel congregations in over 30 U.S. cities, including Los Angeles and notably Baltimore, where Oyedepo's sons serve as pastors. Winners Chapel congregations in the United States are growing rapidly. For instance, a Houston congregation was started in 2008 and holds two services each Sunday morning in a facility that seats 1,000 people. According to multiple online sources, Oyedepo has a net worth, as I mentioned earlier, of about $150 million just behind Kenneth Copeland here in the U.S., uh, who also is one of Oyedepo's mentors. Uh, Kenneth Copeland, of course, has a ministry in the state of Texas here in the U.S. Both men are part of the Prosperity Gospel or Word of Faith movements. Its adherents teach that health and wealth are the rights of Christians and a part of salvation. Copeland, in fact, ordained Oyedepo's sons as ministers and also spoke at the 40th anniversary of Living Faith Church. Now, in 2021, the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists discovered as part of its Pandora Papers project that Oyedepo set up a family offshore company in the British Virgin Islands. The British Virgin Islands are known as a tax haven for offshore companies because of the favorable treatment they receive, including paying no income taxes. Oyedepo preaches most Sundays at what has been called the largest church auditorium in the world. It's called Faith Chapel in Lagos, Nigeria. Oyedepo acquired the 730-acre complex, which is known as Canaan Land, um, a number of years ago, more than two decades ago. It's the home of the 50,000-seat chapel that he built in 1999. It also has an elementary school, a secondary school, a university, and housing for both students and faculty. Canaan Land also has retail and business establishments like a bakery, gas stations, restaurants, banks, and stores. Up next, we have an update from King's College. The non-denominational Christian college in Lower Manhattan in New York City is expected to announce that it will close after a Canadian education investment company failed to deliver on lofty promises to boost declining enrollment, according to several staff and faculty members. Meanwhile, PrimaCorp Ventures, which calls itself Canada's largest independent provider of private post-secondary education, has come to be deeply involved in the fate of the school's finances and real estate holdings. 
Though it never boasted more than a thousand students, the 85-year-old King's has risen to become a top conservative liberal arts school and has often been compared to Hillsdale College and Grove City College, two other small but very influential conservative schools. After announcing last month that it needed $2.6 million to finish the spring semester, King's launched a fundraising campaign that has raised less than half a million dollars. Uh, Many faculty are already posting their resumes online in search of their next jobs. Uh, Beginning Tuesday of this past week, admissions representatives uh, from other schools had set up booths on the King's campus to recruit students. That according to Matthew Parks, who is the chief academic officer and interim provost at King's. But some are holding out hope for either a partnership with another school that would preserve King's brand or for a million dollar donation. Parks said this, we're still fighting for next year. Uh, He said that all of the uh, activities on campus that that were efforts to help students go to other schools was all just plan B. Well, the United Methodist Church is in the news again this week. It is. A North Carolina Superior Court judge dismissed a lawsuit filed last year by 36 United Methodist churches demanding to sever ties with the denomination. Superior Court Judge Richard Doughton issued an oral ruling on Monday, March 20th, dismissing the suit that had been brought against the Western North Carolina Conference of the United Methodist Church, its Board of Trustees, and its bishop, Kenneth Carter. The conference's motion to dismiss had argued that the First Amendment to the United States Constitution prohibits civil court from becoming entangled in church debates that require an examination of religious doctrine and practice. It also argued that the churches do not have standing because the Western North Carolina Conference, a regional association within the denomination, does not formally have members. It was not immediately clear on what basis Downton agreed to dismiss the lawsuit, whether it was the First Amendment issues or the standing issues, and because he gave the uh, ruling orally, there's no written document that we can examine. But the Western North Carolina Conference conference nonetheless heralded the ruling as a victory. The suit represented a departure from the approved plan for churches wishing to leave a denomination embroiled in a theological splinter over LGBTQ issues. Yeah, now most churches wanting to leave the United Methodist Church work through the denomination's official disaffiliation plan, which gives them until December 31st of this year to cut ties. And so far, almost 2,000, 1,994 U.S.-based United Methodist churches have, in fact, left the denomination out of an estimated 30,000 congregations in the U.S. But that number, uh, 1994, is expected to grow fairly dramatically over the course of the year as the proposed departures by many more churches are currently in the process. The United Methodist Church is the country's second largest Protestant denomination, numbering 6.4 million in the United States and 13 million members worldwide. 
And while this lawsuit was playing out in North Carolina, the one, Natasha, you and I have just been talking about, a separate lawsuit in Arkansas was unfolding. A judge in Arkansas ruled that the first United Methodist Church of Jonesboro, Arkansas, can continue its lawsuit to get a clear title for its property after a vote to disaffiliate it from the United Methodist Church denomination. Judge Gary Arnold in Arkansas, who actually served in another area of the state, had been appointed to oversee the matter because all 12 local judges said that they had conflicts of interest and recused themselves from the case. Arnold denied the motion to dismiss filed by the Arkansas Conference of the United Methodist Church, in which the conference argued the court did not have jurisdiction over the case. Now, this ruling does appear to be in contradiction to the North Carolina ruling that we just talked about. However, the church's attorney in Arkansas argued that this is, in fact, not a religious matter, but a secular property dispute over which the court does have jurisdiction. Warren, we're going to take another break when we return our lightning round of ministry news of the week. I'm Natasha Smith with my co-host Warren Smith. More in a moment. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith with my co-host Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Now, we like to use this last segment as a sort of lightning round of shorter news briefs. What's up first? The Preemptive Love Coalition is a 14-year-old faith-based relief organization that was rocked by scandal and internal strife a couple of years ago, has announced that it will be merging with a Washington, D.C.-based organization called Search for Common Ground. It is much larger than Preemptive Love Coalition. It's been around for 41 years and involved in global peace-building activities. The organization will continue to use both groups' names and brandings as it works around the globe to promote peace and combat the crisis that provoke tensions and conflicts. Today marks the start of a new chapter for preemptive love, having overcome organizational challenges of the past two years. That was the announcement in the press release that we received here at Ministry Watch. Now, those challenges included charges that the founders and leaders of the organization, Jeremy and Jessica Courtney, uh, ran the nonprofit like a cult, 
routinely abused staff, capitalized on news stories about international tragedies to raise funds for projects where it didn't work, and deceived donors by falsifying employee time cards and producing promotional materials that overstated the extent of the preemptive Love Coalition's work. Ministry Watch, by the way, reported on all these problems back in 2021, and our coverage uh, depended heavily on a detailed investigative report by Mindy Bells, which was published in World Magazine in 2019. And we have an update on the story about Apex School of Theology, whose leaders pled guilty last year to defrauding taxpayers of $12 million in student aid funds intended to go to veterans. Goodwill Industries of Eastern North Carolina has acquired the former Apex School of Theology campus in Durham, North Carolina. They bought it for about four and a quarter million dollars. Apex had bought the land uh, for that school back in 2011, and they paid just $700,000 for the property. Five people associated with the school uh, pleaded guilty in 2022 to fraudulently obtaining federal financial aid funds, setting up a bogus satellite campus in Columbus, Georgia, and enrolling individuals who agreed to pose as students, then using $12 million in government aid intended for those bogus students for personal expenses. Who is in Christina Darnell's Ministries Making a Difference column? We have Urban Outreach up first. It's an Assemblies of God ministry headquartered in East St. Louis, Missouri. It builds relationships with outcast and addicted people in inner city neighborhoods by bringing them hot meals, coffee, and also by hosting children's events. Urban Outreach leader Jay Covert has planted 11 centers in 10 cities over the past 23 years. A recent Urban Outreach plant in Phoenix helped 570 people get off the streets and into discipleship programs and emergency housing in 2022. I also want to mention Every Child Ministries, which has launched a new program for girls in Uganda to provide job and education training. There are more than 700,000 girls in Uganda under the age of 12 who have never been to school, and only one in five girls make it past the eighth grade. That, according to the Mission Network News. Do you have any final thoughts before we go? Well, I want everybody to check out two stories uh, on our website that kind of defy easy summary for these uh, weekly uh, reviews that we do, Natasha. Uh, The first is my interview with Tim Keller. Uh, That interview includes a discussion of his new book on forgiveness, but we depart from that book pretty quickly and have a wide-ranging conversation. We talk about his cancer. Many of you know that Tim Keller is facing a very dire cancer project diagnosis right now, and how that cancer diagnosis has affected his spiritual life, as well as his challenges as a ministry leader over the years, and how he is behaving today, how he's passing on, passing the baton, so to speak, uh, to younger leaders in his life. 
Uh, also, if you're a regular podcast listener, uh, there's another story that I'd like to mention to you, um, one you may already know about, but just in case you don't, I want you to check out the extra episode this week. More than a year ago, in September of 2021, I wrote an article called Just How Broken is the Bible Translation Industry. In that article, I highlighted some of the problems that I had seen in several years of reporting in the Bible Translation world, from deceptive marketing practices to excessive spending on fundraising. Now, that article caused a minor stir in the Bible Translation world. Uh, I ended up having a lot of constructive conversations and, I must admit, a few very uncomfortable conversations with leaders of Bible Translation organizations after I published that article. One of the men who read that article, though, was Andrew Case. Andrew Case is a thought leader in the Bible translation world, and he has done an episode of his podcast critiquing my article and uh, including doing some additional reporting that I think has been very helpful to this conversation. Andrew graciously allowed us to read purpose his podcast episode as our extra episode this week, and I recommend you checking it out. Do you have anything else? I want our listeners to know that if they give to Ministry Watch during the month of March, they'll receive a copy of my book, Faith-Based Fraud, Learning from the Great Religious Scandals of Our Time. We've offered this book in the past, but it's been more than a year since the last time we offered it, and we've had literally tens of thousands of new people added to our email list since then. So we're making the book available for you new folks, but also maybe some of you that didn't get it in the past. It's our way of saying thank you for a donation of any size to Ministry Watch during the month of March. Just go to ministrywatch.com and hit the donate button at the top of the page. The producers for today's program are Rich Rosal and Jeff McIntosh. We get database and other technical support from Stephen DeBerry, Emily Kern, Rod Pitzer, and Casey Suddeth. Writers who contributed to today's program include Jesse Jackson, Bob Smetania, Audrey Jackson, Kim Roberts, Ann Steich, Steve Raby, Yonat Shimron, Christina Darnell, Megan Salishvili, and Ewern. Special thanks to churchleaders.com and the Christian Chronicle for contributing materials for this week's podcast. And you've been listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Until next time, may God bless you.